0: So today, um, this is kind of cool, I'm up here a little bit early, so that means we'll get out early or I can preach longer, so that's awesome. Um, I, I want to lay out front, and Eric, do we have our PowerPoint going to go? Um, first of all, I just want to let you know that I have an agenda today, and uh, so anytime I have a specific agenda, I don't want you to feel like I snuck up on you, so I'll just lay it out and tell you exactly what my agenda is today. That if at some point in your life, at, you know whether it was last year or 30 years ago or however long that you ever prayed a prayer that God, you know, I just, I need Jesus in my life, or I need to be forgiven, or you got baptized, or if at any point you came into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and then over time, you wandered away from that to any extent that, uh, you know, for any number of reasons, maybe you had a, a bad church experience along the way, and, and, and many people have had that, or, or maybe you went away to college and you just got out of the routine, and it, it just sort of didn't... Uh, continue to be part of your life, uh, maybe you got married and got busy and, and that didn 't you know, really play into what you were all about, or uh, perhaps um, there was a tragedy, maybe somebody got sick and you prayed and prayed and prayed that, that God would heal them, and they, he didn 't and they died anyway, and, and you walked away from that feeling like well if god 's not going to listen to me, then i 'm not going to listen to him, um, maybe your pastor left, and church wasn 't the same anymore, or whatever. So one of those things, you know, may have come along in your life. And and so I I just want to say up front, if your story were my story, like essentially if what happened to you that caused you to wander away and, and walk away from faith was what happened to me, I probably would have responded the same way. Uh, I'm not too different from you. And the reality is that whenever someone does something, it makes sense to them in the context in which they're making that decision. So whatever happened to you or whatever your experience was, the way you responded made sense to you at the time. But my goal today is to urge you, if that's where you have been, That if you're willing to consider re-engaging with God at some level, to take another step back in His direction, whatever that means for you, and that's going to mean different things for uh, different people. For some of you, maybe that means, you know, you're here on Christmas, but that's really not been your uh, routine. Perhaps maybe that means starting to go back to church on a more regular basis. For some of you, maybe it just means picking up your Bible and opening it and starting to read it for the first time. For some of you, maybe it just means that you would pray. And, and you could even start like this, dear God, I've been gone a really long time, I'm back. Right? I mean, just make it that simple, or dear God, my name is Seth, remember me? And and you can re-engage, or, or maybe for some of you, it means going to that small group that somebody has been inviting you to uh, attend, or to, to join for a really long time, and and so... I would just encourage you to consider whatever that means for you to re-engage with God, to to take another step back in His direction, that you would consider that, because Christmas time is really the perfect time to do that. And and what's true of you is also true of me. I, I would guess that no matter where you are, no matter how far you might have wandered away, that deep down inside of you, there is a little spark, some little bit of ember, some type of light that occasionally pings your conscience. That says, man, I really ought to, and then you remember, oh yeah, that's why I stopped doing that, because, and then you have an experience or a story. Uh, Or maybe somebody walks up to you and says, you know, you really ought to read this. Or maybe you go to church on a Christmas Sunday like today, and you're like, oh, he's talking to me, who told him? And and you kind of feel that. And you have successfully pushed that down over the years, but perhaps now is a time to listen to that. So I just want to urge you to give pause and consider reengaging, whatever that means for you. So here's where I want to begin today. I want to to start with a question. With the traditional Christmas story, what character in the story do you most identify with? And I I know that's an odd question, because if you were to ask me that question, what what character in the Christmas story do you identify with, Seth? Mary? (laughs) Nope. Um, Joseph? Well, I don't really know enough about him to really identify with him. The shepherds? Nah, they were scared. Um, What about the wise men? (laughs) Clearly not. You know, so... um, Baby Jesus can't be him. Uh, I I wonder if the person I identify with, to some extent, might be the person that you could also identify with, and it's the person we typically consider the villain of the story, King Herod. I I would even suggest that there's a little bit of King Herod in each one of us. And and if I were honest to, to consider everything about him, there's some characteristics in him that I think... Sometimes pop up in me. I, I, I want to talk about King Herod for a little bit. And uh, King Herod, if, if you're not familiar with him, he was a, considered a client king of Judea, which means that he was simply named by the Roman Empire to rule over the area of Judea. Now, here he is ruling over these Jewish lands, and he was not Jewish, which drove the local people crazy because they didn't want a non Jewish person ruling over them in a Jewish land. However, King Herod was an extremely smart individual. He was very talented. He was politically savvy, and he was very, very ambitious. So he really had a lot of things going in his favor. In fact, he was um, incredibly active in increasing and building infrastructure across the land. He built seaports, aqueducts, and so he had this reputation of being a builder. But he was so talented and so ambitious that it got the best of him. And that is in us as well. Here's, here's Herod's story. I I I've did a lot of um a lot more learning last night on Christmas Eve than I did wrapping. Uh, so that was interesting, but. Have you ever studied Julius Caesar in school? And, and you remember maybe if you had a class on him or some Roman history class, he was, he was murdered on the floor of the Senate, and it's a whole tube brute, it's a U2 Brutus, and he was killed. And, uh, and the year Julius Caesar died was about 44 B.C., before Christ. But Julius Caesar had a very important nephew named Octavius. And Octavius had a very close friend named Mark Anthony. And I think we've got their names up here. So I want to put these names up so that you can track with this, because sometimes these names run into each other. But, but this is an interesting story to me. Octavius, the nephew of Julius Caesar, who was unjustly murdered on the floor of the Senate, and his friend Mark Anthony decide that they're going to take uh, vengeance on those that were responsible for Julius's death. And so they go out and, using their power and influence, destroy all of the people and all of the enemies of, of Julius Caesar who were responsible or had anything to do with his death. And over time and through that process, they began to, began to gain more and more power. And everyone around them saw that this was eventually going to lead them on a collision course with each other. Because the more and more enemies you remove, the reality is there is only room for one sheriff in Rome. And each of these individuals, both Octavius and Mark Anthony, had entire legions of the Roman uh, um, army loyal to them. And so that brings us back to King Herod. King Herod, in this time frame, befriends Mark Anthony. And so he, he he throws his weight behind him, and, uh, and, and Mark, Ant, uh, Mark Anthony, by the way, <clears throat> had a very famous wife from Egypt, anyone remember? Cleopatra, that's right. And she was not very popular in Roman circles, because Roman citizens looked at the possibility of a, a marriage and a queen of Sheba being a queen of Rome, and they had great distaste for her. But over time, Herod kept hosting parties for Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. He's sending them lavish gifts, throwing support behind them. He even supported Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in a rebellion down in Egypt in the city of Alexandria. So coming back to Mark Anthony and Octavius, eventually it leads to civil war between them. And they go uh, against each other, and Herod had bet on the wrong horse. As you know, Mark Anthony loses that civil war, and uh, it's actually a very short civil war. He cannot withstand the power of Octavius. And shortly after the civil war, Mark Anthony runs back to Alexandria. He's deposed of. Uh, Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus and the, very, the, the first emperor of Rome and, and, and all of that stuff. So this happens so quickly, Herod's caught off guard, and he essentially <laughs> realizes uh oh, I'm on the wrong side. I was back in the loser. And so I've got about three options. One, I can just kill myself and get it over with quickly. Two, I can run away, but they'll find me. Or three, I can just hunker down and hope that nobody notices. But because of his ambition, he pulls a stunt that was so outrageous, it worked. What he chooses to do is not any of those three. He goes and gets on a boat and sails to the island of Rhodes. Now, the island of Rhodes is where Octavius was. So here he goes sailing up to the front door of his enemy, the one who just beat the guy he had been supporting. He knocks on the door and asks to speak to the emperor. (laughs) Everyone's standing around saying, what are you doing here? You're an enemy of the state, and we're coming for you but you showed up. So they let him in. He goes in and he speaks to um, uh, Octavius and gives a speech that's so awesome that uh, it worked. Essentially, his speech was like this. He said, as you know, Octavius, I was a friend of Mark Anthony. And not only a friend of his, I was a loyal supporter of his from the very beginning. Even through the civil war against you, and even to the very end of his life. So what you know about me is that if I give my loyalty to somebody, I am loyal to the bitter end. And so, O oh great Caesar, today I pledge my loyalty to you. <laughs> well, Augustus was so amazed and impressed, he not only let King Herod keep Judea, but he also gave him Samaria and Gaza and Jericho. So that's King Herod in the Bible story of the birth of Jesus. Super bright, very, very ambitious, incredibly savvy politically, but his weakness, he was so committed to his own legacy and controlling the circumstances around him that he continued to make bad decision after bad decision in other areas of his life. For example, he changed his will four different times, he had 10 different wives. And every few years or so, as among all the sons that he had with those wives, he would say, hey, you're the right son to be my heir. A couple years later, nah, you're the right son to be my heir, so I got to kill this one. And a couple years later, uh, no, you're the right son, so I got to kill this one. But it didn't take long before all the sons were like, no thanks, dad, we don't want to be king. We, we just don't even need that. And so each time you know, he named someone else. It just got messier and messier and messier. And he was so committed to his legacy and having someone who was his heir on the throne when he died that he murdered person after person after person. In fact, he murdered many, many rabbis across the city of Jerusalem, so many that other rabbis from their surrounding area didn't even want to go to the city. And he was so determined to maintain control that he was willing to kill anybody who potentially would pose a threat to his kingship. And then we get to the biblical narrative. Here in this story, Herod is about 70 years old and suffering from a kidney disease that was incredibly painful. So here he is, very sick, At the end of his life, trying to consolidate power, secure a successor to sit on his throne so that the next generation would carry on his legacy and his name, and then he receives the most disturbing news possible, that five miles away, there's a new king who is just learning to walk. And here's where we hit the biblical narrative. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 pull out that right note here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, and now you know all about King Herod and his mania and his willingness to depose a people, magi from the east, magi are typically you used to call them wise men, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, now imagine where this question would have landed with King Herod now that you know his background. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. (laughs) Shh, don't say that to Herod. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And notice this, and all Jerusalem with him. Because if you were under his rule and you knew he was not in a good mood, it meant bad things for you. Because when he was disturbed, he was violent, he was not stable, he was liable to do anything and just start killing people. So it was no wonder Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So if you were a Jew and you got called into Herod's palace, you were scared you did not know where this was going to go. And so he's got all the religious leaders in the room from this Jewish city and asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? And they answer, verse 5, well, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was written. And they're thinking, well, wait a second, if you're the ruler of the Jews, every Jew knows where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And then they quote the prophet. They say, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And to Herod's ears, this is the worst possible news imaginable. So then Herod called the magi secretly. These guys had originally asked the question and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And now he asked something thinking that he's being shrewd. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. <laughs> Now see, today in our culture we think worship means singing. That is not what this means. Worship simply means to consider someone else worthy of awe and respect. The ver- verse nine: After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. Again, this doesn't mean they walked in singing praises to him. In the Bible, when you recognize that you're in the, person, in the presence of a person that causes you to have awe, there is a respect that is given. And you do whatever you need to physically, like take a knee or bow down, or mentally you adjust your attitude so that you, in effect, are surrendering yourself to that person. And these are very, very wealthy men who had traveled months and months and months and find themselves in the presence of a baby... And because of who they believed he was was and would grow to be, they dropped to their knees in awe and respect, giving worship. And five miles away, Herod's sitting in his room thinking, where are those guys? Where do they go? He's so concerned to preserve, protect, control, preserve, protect, control, preserve, protect, control. His finch class, not wor- worrying about worshiping. Who would he possibly surrender or give awe to considering his background. So perhaps there's a little Herod in all of us. Like, I don't mind leveraging God when it benefits me. I don't mind praying if it's going to somehow have a good outcome for me. I don't even mind going to church if I think it's going to somehow benefit my marriage or my family or help my kids grow up, get a little church on them. But the idea of surrendering myself and my decision-making process to someone else, that's foreign or at least it battles in us and creates tension. And because of that, I think there's a little bit of Herod in each of us. In verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, I should think not, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Hey, get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Because the angel, you know, obviously God knows, when Herod finds out that he'd been duped, by a couple of travelers, two parents and a baby, was not going to end well. And stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt. And you can hear the soundtrack building up if this were a movie, right? Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, He was furious. And when Herod was furious, people suffered. When Herod was furious, people died. When Herod was furious, there were negative consequences to be had because he had spent his entire life controlling the outcomes, protecting his legacy, killing those that posed any threat whatsoever. And so no matter what happened to this point, he had been able to you know, control the outcomes effectively, even when he was supposed to go down for having supported Mark Anthony, he figured out a way. He was smart enough, quick enough, you know, uh, witty enough, even when he bet on the wrong leader. And so, he's so bold and so crafty, he thinks he can control this outcome as well. Regardless of a prophecy, he was the master of his domain, so he thought. And he'd been outwitted by two parents, a baby, and three travelers. So he decides, that ain't going to happen. I am not going to be thwarted by this. And so he gives instructions, sends out orders that are so extreme, so outlandish, they don't make any sense to us in our culture unless you know Herod's story, which now you do. Verse 16, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Agi. So Herod says, if you're not going to tell me the one location where this baby is, then I'm going for the nuclear option, and we're going to wipe out all the baby boys that could even potentially be this kid that you're talking about, not just in the town, but even in the surrounding areas. And so the soldiers, they one horrible morning, a terrible afternoon, and into that evening, they go door to door through this town. They go through to, to every farmhouse in the region. They walk in, and if there's a baby boy there, slaughter them right in the presence of their parents and kill anybody in the household who attempts to stop them in front of their siblings, their brothers and sisters. I, yeah, I'm not going to think about that too much because that's just awful. And Mary lived with this knowledge that this tragedy happened to her neighbors and her friends and her relatives because of her baby. But not long after that slaughter, maybe even within the same year, we don't know, Herod dies. And he dies a terribly painful death from his kidney disease. In fact, uh, other historical documents show that it was so painful that he tried to commit suicide. And committing suicide in in the first century itself was a painful process. But that pain, evidently, was less than the pain he was experiencing from his kidney disease. So he thought it was worth it. The problem was, while he's in the midst of trying to kill himself in this most painful of ways, a cousin walks in the room and stops him. Thanks. And so he goes on living and suffering with this disease. And just before his death, as as the days became more and more uh, certain that he was going to die, he gives one final order. That his soldiers round up all of the respected and loved men in Jerusalem and put them in prison. And on the day he dies, every one of them is to be executed so that he would be assured that people in the city would mourn on the day of his own death. Because he knew that if he died, there'd be a party. So I'm taking people out with me who are loved. Well, sure enough, he dies. (laughs) and they let all the guys go. They're like, get out of here. You know That dude was terrible, and he's gone. And the story continues, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, get, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. <laughs> and in one of the more, perhaps, poetic, poetically just ways, in a twist of history, Herod the Great, who through a series of circumstances we believe were divinely appointed, can can you imagine trying to explain to him that at the end of his life, after he was dead, that his name would be repeated century after century after century, that his story would be told 2,000 years later, but not because he was great, that he would simply be the footnote in the story of a baby. I think that would pain him. The good news is, here we stand today telling the story of Herod, and he is nothing more than a footnote in the story of a baby who grew to be the savior of the world, the Messiah and your Lord. And then 80 years later, 80 years later, Herod's long gone Jesus has grown up, he's performed miracles, he was crucified, God raised him from the dead, took him to heaven, and now he sits at the Father's right hand. Eighty years later, Herod's gone, Caesar is gone, Nero is gone, even the temple in Jerusalem is gone. It has been burned, raised to the ground. All those years of work, all the glory that had been afforded God through that building, all gone. Eighty years later, the apostle John... John, who we talked about last night, stood at the foot of the cross and took uh, instructions from Jesus to take care of his mom. He heard the birth story over and over and over, probably sitting over dinner with Mary, had the opportunity. What was it like to run away to Egypt? What was it like to carry the Son of God as a mother pregnant? What, What was it like to live with the knowledge that your friends lost their children because of yours? And and this is John who knew Jesus personally, who had seen him do miracles, who traveled the roads with him, who had run to the tomb, looked in and found it empty, later had breakfast on a beach with a risen Savior. Here he is, an old man, seen it all, heard it all. He sits down to write his story of Jesus and summarize it. It's so relevant to us. It's why we got to pay attention to that thing in us that nudges us, that pushes us, that that pings our conscience from time to time. We'll go back to the passage we read last night in John 1. In Him, and notice this. I want to focus on, on the verb tense today. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Not just the Jews, but for everyone, every one of us sitting here today. John says, you know, we thought it was about Israel, but it, when one day he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and we knew it, suddenly it wasn't just about the Jews, it wasn't just about Israel. So John says, looking back, it really was about all. And then he moves from the past tense in the same thought to the present tense. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness. It shines right now, when John was writing. It shines right now as we come here today. It will continue to shine four years from now, eight years from now, 12 years from now, 16 years from now, no matter who's president. It will continue to shine whether the United States maintains superpower status or begins to wane on the world stage. He continues to shine whether your portfolio and your investments go up or down or disappear. He continues to shine, whether your family life stays together or takes a terrible turn or somebody gets sick or somebody walks out, it continues to shine. And here John sits on an island, exiled, and it looks like Rome had won. All his friends were gone. All he knew of Judaism was gone. Yet he looks back on life and says, that light that was in him, that light that brings me life is shining right now and it is not going away. And then he adds his punctuation. And the darkness has not overcome it. Which brings us to me, which brings us to you, brings us to us. What will your story be in relationship to the light of the world? We have two options. Your story can be one where you resisted, like Herod. Or your story can be one where you worshipped, like the Magi. Will you choose to take your cue from Herod, or will you choose to take your cue from the Magi? Is your story one of resistance, where you know you spend your life trying to build your kingdom and earn your way and build your portfolio and get a bigger house and get more esteem and climb the corporate ladder? Or will you instead accept God's invitation to be a part of what He's doing in this world, regardless of what that means for your own personal kingdom, because you're too busy building His kingdom? Will your story be one where you... T- clung so tightly to the things of this world that you had or that you began to use them for whatever God felt was more appropriate because you realized they were never yours in the first place? Will your story be that of a man or a woman who surrendered everything because they understood who the true owner was, or will your story be one of trying to do it my way? Or will it be one of doing it God's way? That's the reason we experience tension. That's the reason we struggle with this, because we're all human, and we all have a little bit of King Herod in us. But one day, someone's going to be forced to tell your story, whether it's at your funeral or some other, you know, uh, event. But someone is going to tell your story in relationship to the light of the world, and either they'll be forced to make something up, or they'll be able to tell the story in its truth. It could be even at some point you drifted away and you turned your back and didn't matter how far you'd gone, you thought you'd lost hope. Life ran over you, stomped on your head, and all the light in life you thought was in you at one point seemed gone. But somehow and at some point, maybe it was on a Christmas Sunday, you realized that he was still there for you. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. That's a question you have to answer. I can't answer that for you. What story do you want told about you? The good news is that the darkness has not and will not overcome the light that's in you. That light that you feel rising up, that presence of Jesus says, Remember, maybe you should go back. I'm waiting for you. And it still has not overcome the light in you. It's the reason you're here today, and it's the reason I'm getting under your skin a little bit. That's the reason that you'll drive down the road and find yourself talking to God, then you're not even sure you believe in him. Why? Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this Christmas, I just encourage you to take even just a baby step back towards reengaging with God. Whatever that means for you, it's going to land somewhere different for every one of us. But here's the thing. The magi in this story got it right. Because when you're in the presence of holiness, when you're in the presence of light, when you're in the presence of something awe-inspiring, the only thing to do is worship, to give reverence, to surrender yourself. And So in our closing song today, I just encourage you to think about some of these things in this story. And those that are gonna play, you gonna come on up. We're gonna wrap up our service today, and I am just excited about what God continues to do in my life, and I'm confident that he will continue to work in your life even if it doesn't seem like he's there right now, or even if it seems like he's been there all the time and never gone anywhere. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us the light of the world in your son, and that the darkness has not put it out even through his death. Everyone here has a story right now. And some of us maybe thought it flickered out, but it's been bugging us and not leaving us alone. And as we sing our final song, I I just ask that you do that thing in us that only you can do, that you'd push us past our excuses, you'd push us past our objections, and that you'd help us worship and surrender and help us to say yes to the light of the world. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.